This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And good morning, and this is the Deep Dive, and I am Brooke Spector as usual. And today uh, we will talk again with David Smith. We return to David periodically because he understands South Africa, obviously. He lived here for many years, but he's now the Washington correspondent for the Guardian newspapers in, obviously, Washington. And he has an increasingly insightful understanding of what is motivating Americans and what they're doing and why they're doing it. And we're delighted to always have David to join us periodically. Beyond the news, we share a couple of things in common. We both love the great classic films. He is forever paying attention to anniversaries in space exploration, and uh, he has a great love of theater. Before we start our program, I usually try to find out a little bit. Every once in a while, he sends me an update on yet another place where some of the dialogue in Casablanca has worked its way into contemporary political discourse. I rely on him for these updates into American culture. But let's turn to the United States, and we'll put aside the classic films and space travel. I really have to note the person who took over the position of administrator with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration when the oath of office was administered. A Bible was not used, a Quran was not used, but a book by Carl Sagan was the uh, book upon which a hand was placed. Anyway, let's move on. I think we probably can't get away from it. Uh, this continuing, and we'll call it this, the curse of gun, multiple killing gun violence in the United States. Almost every time you turn around, there has been yet another incident. I think we are now uh, 100 days into into this calendar year, and there have been, I believe, somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 occurrences of more than one person at a time being killed by somebody with a with an itch that apparently cannot be scratched. What's your reaction to this, David? How do you see this getting out of this, this mess, this morass? Well, hello, thanks for having me again. And uh, a truly terrible curse on American life that, that really sets the United States apart from pretty much every other major Western industrial society. Um, gun violence is just, it's just way worse uh, in America. And um, some Republicans and conservatives would have you believe that that's just life and it's natural and there's nothing can be done about it, to which the response of Democrats and other campaigners is, you know, hang on a minute, look at the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, Scandinavia, um, there's just not gun violence on this scale. This is actually a societal, a so- sociological issue. It's a, it's a choice that America has made to actually have more guns than people within its borders. And there's all sorts of historical reasons, uh, for that, uh, gun culture. And it's interesting that actually many Democrats, including President Joe Biden, will actually say, I own a gun or two and I enjoy shooting sometimes, but I still believe in gun laws. Um, so that there is something very culturally different about that belief, you know, the frontier spirit, the wild west and so on. But even so, um, the current laws are particularly lax. Um, and Joe Biden and other Democrats have tried to make a focus and you, you ask, you know, what can be done to get out of this? Biden is, is uh, talking a lot about, um, uh, assault rifles. And I think that's quite a good example because 
fairly recently, they actually were banned by Congress. Um, uh, I think it was uh, about 30 years ago um, and banned for a spell. And during that time, you could actually see the results. There were, there were there was a tangible impact. Uh, the number of gun deaths did go down. Gun violence was reduced. And and when that ban ended and assault rifles came back, uh, the numbers uh, went up again. So, you know, this is not uh, rocket science. This is uh, a fairly obvious cause um, and effects. Um, but, you know, is such a ban going to come into play soon or are other measures going to be taken uh, quite probably not, uh, at least for a couple of years in the current Congress. Of course, uh, Republicans who are very pro-gun and beholden to the, the gun lobby, uh, control the House of Representatives. There's very little sign of, of them taking any, uh, action. And, and what was quite striking, um, after a, uh, a, a recent, um, episode of, of, of gun violence in which uh, three school children died, um, was, uh, and that was in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and three adults as well. Really what, what struck me with what was different, um, you heard from both sides an acknowledgement. Not much is going to get done about this. Uh, Joe Biden said very openly and publicly, we passed some bipartisan legislation last year that did, uh, take some measures, red flag laws, which mean, um, you can, uh, if you think someone in your community is a danger, you can report them to authorities, uh, tightening background checks on gun buyers and so on. He said, you know, frankly, that's, that's all we can do. Um, I have no more powers in my presidency. It was an acknowledgement of the finite reach of the president. And then on the Republican side, you actually heard some members of Congress saying, can't do anything about this. Um, that, you know, th- th- this is life. This is the way American culture is. Um, we cannot act, uh, and they were much criticized for that, as you can imagine. But I, I thought that spirit of, of defeatism and, and surrender was, um, important and, and, and pretty, uh, depressing. So I think, um, like many other issues, um, really it's now over to the voters, bring on the 2024 election. Interestingly, in elections, gun violence is not usually the number one issue by any means. Maybe it's somewhere in the mix, but it's up to voters now to elect uh, a president and Congress that uh, is promising to take action on this and will follow through. In the last election, the midterm election, we just survived uh, in the United States. Termination of pregnancies, abortions became a key issue in many races, not all of them, perhaps, but in, in many races, partly because uh, some of the a significant number of Republican candidates were very, very strongly opposed to allowing that procedure to continue. Uh, and in almost all cases, they were trounced at the polls. And some of the argument is being made that, all right, we can't get the whole cake on gun control, but if somehow just a ban on assault rifles, the AR-15s, the, the kind of weapon that's handed to an infantryman in the army uh, and not necessarily to your, your local neighborhood uh, target shooter, then that would be a significant victory and a lever to succeed at the polls next year. And some of that bled over, a bad choice of word maybe, uh, into uh, the events in Tennessee just the other day after the shooting in the state house at the state legislature, 
where two members of the state legislature, Democrats, were expelled because they had protested the inability to move on gun control. Now, one of them has actually now been reappointed by the local jurisdiction. Do you think that this is really going to become a salient issue for Democrats in 2024? I think it will certainly be um, in the mix. And uh, the the Tennessee example you mentioned, uh, those expelled um, members of the Tennessee House, you know, gave powerful speeches, including making the point to know, you know, you will not ban assault. You will assault our democracy. And, you know, they were pointing out the absurdity that Republicans in Tennessee do nothing and turn a blind eye to uh, gun violence that literally leaves schoolchildren dead. And yet they are up in arms and taking action to expel young black men who are members of the Tennessee House for staging uh, a simple protest in the in the fine tradition of American protest. And it was evocative of uh, Congressman John Lewis in, in Washington uh, staging a sit in over gun violence um, a few years ago. So, um, yeah, I think that's a good question and a good point that. Uh, when um, it manifests itself in that sort of political action by Republicans and, and, and suddenly these, these expelled Democrats are national figures. You know, a week earlier, nobody had heard of them. Uh, I spent the weekend they, watching them all over cable news, giving interview after interview, suddenly became becoming political stars. That, uh, that shows you how this uh, issue can, can quickly take off and, uh, and could become uh, very relevant in the uh, election. And as we both said already, I think um, giving something a tight, concrete focus that people can get their heads around, like an assault weapons ban is better than just a very amorphous, you know, we need to clamp down on gun rights. Um, uh, so that that would be wise. And I think that's why you've seen Joe Biden talk a lot about uh, assault weapons in, in particular, rather than uh, a um, all of that said, um, there's a lot going on in America. I think um, the recent evidence suggests perhaps uh, abortion rights is a more potent issue than than gun rights. You know, uh, the famous phrase about elections, it's the economy, stupid. I suspect more people will still vote based on their economic interests than guns. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of other things going on as well. So, uh, yes, in, in certain districts at certain moments, um, I think guns will be... Um, important, but it will certainly not be the, the whole ball game in 2024. And that, I think, sort of leads us to the issue uh, again, uh, abortion, pregnancy termination. There have been two contradictory rulings by judges just in the last week, one in Texas saying that a drug that has been used for, I think it's 23 years uh, under Food and Drug Administration approval, the so-called morning after pill, Suddenly, a a judge in Texas ruled that this was an illegal substance. And a contrasting ruling in, what was it, Oregon, uh, saying that, oh, no, no, it's it's fine. Setting up a challenge rather quickly going to the Supreme Court, maybe? Yes, uh, quite, quite, quite possibly. I think uh, everyone is a little bit confused. And you even see some... Uh debate among Democrats about um, does the, the federal drug authority uh, have the right just to ignore the Texas ju- judge's ruling and, and press ahead um, or, you know, will this, will this ultimately go to the Supreme court? It's uh, I think it's a, it's a real wake up call for Americans um, after the overturning of Roe versus Wade that uh, you know, fundamental 
abortion rights are uh, under threat. Um, and it's um, ultimately very self-destructive for the Republican Party. Um, they have uh, pursued this uh, attack on uh, abortion rights uh, for, for years. And, um, you know, be careful what you wish for. They, they did get Roe versus Wade, the constitutional right to abortion, overturned. Uh, we saw a, a big political backlash um, as people turned out for Democrats in last year's midterms. And, and now, um, you know, Mike Pence, who probably is going to run for president, is calling for a national abortion ban. Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, another possible candidate, is also likely to sign a, a six-week abortion ban in, in Florida. Uh, they're still digging into this hole, and, and voters do not like it, and it could be very counterproductive for them in the 2024 election. We're speaking with David Smith, Washington correspondent of The Guardian newspapers in, obviously, Washington. We're going to take a station break. We'll be right back and continue our conversation with David. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is indeed The Deep Dive, and I'm Brooke Spector. I'm delighted to be speaking with David Smith. Washington correspondent for the Guardian newspapers, and we're doing a real tour of the tour de horizon, as we say, uh, of American politics and where it's all going to lead us to. I guess we would be in trouble if we didn't somehow mention the trials and tribulations of a certain former president, although he didn't have to do the perp walk in New York City. He did get fingerprinted, and he did have to go to an arraignment where they read 34 charges against the man, and he did not look like a very happy camper. And there are more cases coming his way, it would appear. That's right. It was a it was a mix. In in some ways, um, he was humbled and treated like a a common criminal, and that uh, he he had to show up at court. Um, there's a memorable video clip of of someone not holding a door open for him. He actually had to open his own door, which uh, maybe the first time in many, many years Donald Trump has had to do that. As you say, he was fingerprinted and he had the humiliation of just sitting in a courtroom with uh, police officers behind him, uh, having these charges read to him. Uh, for anyone, it's humbling. On the other hand, um, he was not treated like um, a person of color who's arrested by the police uh, and treated roughly and with little respect. Um, he, uh, he did not have to have his photographic, uh, mugshot, uh, mugshot taken. Um, although that did not stop his campaign putting out a, a fake mugshot for marketing purposes, um, whipping up, uh, fundraising. Um, he, um, yeah, he, he, he did not have, uh, some of the other basic things that, that people have to, to, to go through, um, and, um, and obviously huge security presence, uh, uh, absolute, uh, circus of, of media in, in downtown Manhattan. Um, and that night Trump was back at his, back in his safe space at Mar-a-Lago, his home in Florida, giving a speech. Now the, the judge had said, you know, tone down the rhetoric, um, don't be, don't incite violence. And so, of course, typical Trump, he gives a speech where he in, insults the judge, says, uh, he's got a, a Trump-hating wife, Trump-hating daughter, uh, attacks all the other prosecutors in all the other investigations um, going after him. Um, I think um, in, the, in the short term, this day was actually a boost for Donald Trump uh, politically. Um, someone wrote, uh, in, the attention, in the attention economy, 
Donald Trump is the world's richest man. Um, he was where he wants to be with every camera on him, um, starving his Republican primary rivals of oxygen and really showing his dominance of the Republican Party because, you know, in normal circumstances, look, here's a, a candidate facing criminal charges over paying hush money to a porn star. In the old Republican Party, his rivals would have seized on that like lions. In the Trump Republican Party, they were actually defending him, which is astonishing when you think about it and claiming, you know, who didn't. There were a couple who voiced criticism. Chris Christie and Asa Hutchison, both former governors, said enough of this already. Indeed. Um, Christie's not officially a candidate yet. I mean, he may run. We'll have to see. Uh, Hutchison is running. And yes, he thinks Trump should drop out. Um, but neither of these, at least so far, are remotely serious contenders. Um, Ron DeSantis is, uh, by far the uh, the main challenger to to Trump in in every opinion poll and uh and he effectively sided with Trump and you know joined Trump's argument that this is a conspiracy by democrats in the deep state and 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 so on and and, and so on um so it did appear to give Trump uh, a boost in the opinion polls in the republican primary uh, certainly gave him um a shot in the arm in terms of fundraising i i think they're saying um 12 million dollars or, or something crazy However, um, I think in the longer term, um, as you would expect on, in such a case, uh, it probably is damaging to him in a general election um, for, for, for millions of Democrats and independent and, and moderate voters. Um, you know, being charged over hush money to a porn star is, is not a good look and um, it's probably going to weaken him in a general election. And, and probably the events of last week uh, just increased by a few percentage points the likelihood that Next year's election will be a replay of 2020 between Joe Biden and Donald Trump and, and also increase the likelihood of the same results where Joe Biden wins by several million votes. Think about the case in New York where he is now formally charged with, uh, the, the, ver- with the various problems in getting the money to the adult film star. There are other cases that may well show up, you know, over the next couple of months, uh, the one in Georgia where he is, he's clearly been recorded as saying, you'll have to go out and find 11,780 votes for me so I can win the state, even if they didn't exist. And then the two investigations by the Justice Department, the Federal Justice Department's uh, special prosecutor, the one on the insurrection at the Capitol and his role in it a year and a half ago, and the other one, uh, the uh, the basement at Mar-a-Lago with all those uh, top-secret classified documents shoved this way and that way, uh, mixed together with souvenirs from, from state dinners. Does it seem likely to you as this continues to, you know, as yet another penny drops every couple of weeks, every month or so, the cumulative effect of this will begin to show? Yes, there was that sense uh, in the Manhattan court last week that this is just the first raindrop in an oncoming thunderstorm. And actually, uh, the, the Stormy Daniels case might become a bit of a footnote and be overshadowed by the many, many cases to come, um, which you've you've run through there. Um, at his speech at Mar-a-Lago that night, uh, Trump seemed to spend most time talking about the classified documents at uh, 
well, he was at the scene of the crime at Mar-a-Lago itself and uh, spinning many lies and falsehoods about the circumstances of that case. And and there are experts who think his mishandling of classified documents, his uh, refusal to comply with the subpoena is perhaps the the most clear cut is the is the easiest one to to bring against him um there's you know there's not much wiggle room for him there and that does loom uh, this year um and yes you're right so certainly the the challenge his attempt to overturn the election in uh, in Georgia um all indications are that could be that could be imminent and very serious and far reaching and uh, and could actually implicate um, a lot of people, not just Trump, but many of his allies. Um, and I wrote an article last week where I spoke to some political analysts and experts and Republicans who dislike Trump. And uh, certainly uh, at least some of them were arguing indeed that the, the cu- cumulative effect of, of all these cases could eventually bury him. Um, you know, the Stormy Daniels one, he can shrug off and there are debates over how strong that case actually is legally and is it based on an untested legal theory. But uh, some of these others, um, maybe it will be harder for Ron DeSantis and other Republicans to defend him. Maybe they will um, turn on him. And um, you know, perhaps not even Trump can survive the absolute um, onslaught. Um, I, you know, I, my worry is that uh, it all becomes a bit of a, a car crash and these various criminal charges come closer and closer to the Republican primary uh, just when his base is at his most energized and it, it leads to, to protests and potential violence. Um, I mean, you know, there are, there are multiple options here in, in different universes. And I think there are, there are some universes where there's a pretty grim um, outcome to, to, to all of this. It's certainly yet another stress test for democracy and and yet another reminder that uh, seven or eight years into the Trump era, um, America is not yet um, out of the woods. You are a cheerful man. I'm telling you, you're you're making me squirm with, with, with fear at this point. Maybe it can be as bad as all that, but I mean, there are other things that happened as well. Just when we thought it was going, it was going to be all Trump all the time, then there was this new case of a whole slew of secret documents that's that wandered out of the Pentagon just in the last, presumably the last couple of days, although no one seems to know precisely when they first were let loose, which are at the minimum enormously embarrassing to the current administration in that they, they seem to show that the the intelligence apparatus of the U.S. government was almost as busy uh, paying close attention to its allies and friends and what their leaders say as it was to its antagonists, and even to the point of worrying that perhaps the Ukrainians may simply run out of gas, uh, metaphorically, uh, before they can have their spring offensive. I can't seem to find anything that says precisely how this happened or and there's no finger being pointed yet at anybody. It just they suddenly showed up. That's right. It is a, a who done it um, a, a mystery. And when you think of some of the major incidents, um, well, obviously, I mean, you know, 50 years ago there was the, the Pentagon Papers and Daniel Ellsberg. But but even in this era, um, we've had uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and a very obvious human face to, to that one. 
Um, and I remember, by the way, you know, being in South Africa, getting the call saying these documents have emerged on WikiLeaks. Uh, could you sift through them, find references to South African diplomacy? And then a few years later, the, um, the Edward Snowden, um, saga and the, the very office where I'm speaking to you from at this moment is, is where a lot of that story was put together and, and, and written. I'm in the Guardian office in Washington, DC. And, and we knew a bit more there about the motives and they had a human face. Um, and what was also different about those cases was, um, the diplomacy cables, the, the NSA documents were, were relatively old. At least they were, a few years old, whereas um, this latest leak, um, some of them are only about 40 days old. It's, it's very fresh information and therefore potentially more explosive. And it's it's everything from the state of Ukraine's uh, air defenses and how those are under pressure to um, you know, South, South Korea proposing, I think, uh, 330,000 rounds of ammunition for Ukraine, um, Egypt potentially sending some arms to, to Russia secretly, um, and there may be more to come. Um, now, the revelation that America is spying on its on its allies and spying on President Zelensky of Ukraine uh, feels um, one of those where it operates on a couple of levels. There's the, uh, oh, my God, what sort of shock, horror, and now America's going to have to apologize, and dip, uh, European countries are going to be very miffed and... Uh, say how outrageous this is and then uh, on another more realistic level there's a kind of shrug of oh yeah we knew they would we knew they did that i mean surprise surprise you know <laughs> and, uh, and everybody's kind of in on the joke in on the game that uh you know no no great surprise america does that and and indeed um the the wikileaks cables told us that and there was uh, a diplomatic row for a while and i seem to remember angela merkel of germany being upset and Obama having to apologize and so on and and um there was that sense of, well, perhaps nobody will talk to America again. And then, of course, quite soon a realization America is the most powerful country in the world. Of course, everybody has to carry on uh, talking to them. Um, so, uh, yeah, hard to see how this will play out. Uh, definitely embarrassing for now for America. I suspect a few years uh, hence uh, people won't remember it so much. But it's, uh, it's interesting what it um, may tell us about the Ukraine war in that uh, – it's it's far from over. Ukraine definitely has weaknesses and problems, and of course they do. You know, facing Russia, and um, a crucial question I think really is: Does this diminish morale and reduce um, support for Ukraine, and make some people, even in Washington, but also in Europe, sort of say, actually, this is harder than we thought. We've got to pull out, or somewhat hope does it have the opposite effect and say? My God, you know, uh, Ukraine could still lose a lot of territory here. We we need to redouble our efforts and uh, and strengthen those air defences and 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 so on. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say hard to predict the the uh, the political fallout. We're speaking with David Smith, Washington correspondent, uh, the Guardian newspapers, uh, giving us updates on the way in which Washington and the rest of the country, in fact, are are responding to news items. We're talking about the latest round of uh, leaked documents. And before we go to a station break, I'll just toss out to you, and we'll think about this for a second. Before World War II, the Secretary of State, Henry Stimson, uh, when asked about uh, espionage matters, he, you know, he puffed up his chest a bit and said, gentlemen, do not read each other's mail. 
Obviously, uh, gentlemen do read each other's mail these days. <laughs> we'll be back with more with David Smith in just a minute. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is the Deep Dive. This is Brooke Spector, and we're pleased to be in conversation with David Smith, Washington correspondent for The Guardian newspaper. And not surprisingly, because America seems to have an election almost every afternoon, eyes are beginning to focus on the idea that there is, in fact, an election next year, and the primary season is just, what, six, eight months away. And uh, if you are going to be a declared candidate, now is the time or pretty soon. And among Republicans, you obviously have Donald Trump, who has declared. You have Nikki Haley, former ambassador to the U.N., who has declared, former governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchison, who has declared. And I think there's one other. But there are about seven or eight other people who seem to be thinking they will really shortly, including uh, the man Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, that you've mentioned a couple of times. Is there anybody else out there? that looks like they're going to be a candidate, an important one? Or should we begin just to settle in and and deal with what we've got? He is looking very active on the campaign trail. Um, And, you know, he's going to all the right places. Uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, these, of course, are the uh, early voting states in Republican primaries. Uh, Probably not Democratic primaries anymore if the Democratic Party gets its way. But uh, he's there and he's also from South Carolina, which is the first state in the South to vote, and he's got an event there. And uh, I think um, that will be an interesting story and an intriguing candidacy because Tim Scott is African-American and he talks a lot about what it is to be a, a black Republican and, and challenge the assumptions that if you're black, you uh, you have to vote uh, for the Democratic uh, Party. Um, and he, he talks about uh, individual merit and uh, pulling himself up by his bootstraps kind of thing. Um, so, uh, but, you know, with him and Nikki Haley also from South Carolina and some of these other candidates too, there, there is the suspicion that, um, they are trying to make a mark with a view to becoming Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis's vice president. So one thing to watch is, um, to, to what extent do they attack, um, their rivals? And certainly so far, I mean, in the past, Tim Scott has been pretty loyal to Trump and, uh, even now she's an official candidate and holding many events, by the way, and, and raising a lot of money, although not doing very well in the polls. Um, Nikki Haley is also generally pulling her punches, um, not going after Trump because she knows that would alienate his base and would, uh, scuttle her chances of becoming, um, his, uh, vice president. Um, I think you know if you look at uh, the most recent opinion polls, number one is is Donald Trump. Sometimes with more than fifty percent, I mean, commanding a majority of the entire party, clearly still the favourite and, and front runner. And and certainly there is that argument that even if he loses, um, Trumpism will triumph. He has reshaped the party in his own image. So Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who's in second place in in every poll. Um, is, uh, is, is very Trumpian in many respects. Um, but as, as one voter I interviewed said, uh, I like DeSantis because he's Trump without the circus. Um, I think one of DeSantis's arguments will be 
you know, vote for me, I'll bring you all the same right-wing policies, I'll bring you all the same media bashing and so-called owning the libs, um, but I'll do it wearing a smart suit and with a bit of organization and efficiency, and I will not have all the legal baggage around porn stars and violent coups and the the, the nightmare that Trump uh, brought you. Um, so we'll see how that goes. And in the Guardian this week, we're doing a series about Ron DeSantis's Florida and how he is trying to sell that as a as a blueprint uh, for the rest of America, and that's that's the theme of his recent book. And then in third place in the Republican primary polls is uh, Mike Pence, who of course was uh, vice president under Donald Trump, and um, he's also on a book tour. And he will say things like, "Believe it or not, uh, I was friends with Donald Trump. We got on very well." He will argue that the Trump Pence administration policies were a huge hit and rescued America. And he will say that the breaking point from Trump was the January 6th um, insurrection. Uh, The president wanted him to join this uh, attack on democracy and overturning the 2020 election. Uh, Mike Pence refused. Trump, in his usual childish manner, said, well, if that's the case, then I'm not going to be your friend anymore. Um, And they they barely speak these days. Absolutely. Now, I think the the Pence uh, candidacy partly rests on the hope that Donald Trump either goes to prison and is no longer in the race or uh, has a heart attack and dies. And it's it's a very difficult balancing act. It's trying to sort of keep a lot of Trump voters saying you know, we did the right policies. But then it's also trying to appeal to more, more moderate Republicans who dislike uh, January the 6th. It's also trying to appeal to Christian evangelicals who like Pence's religious faith and his stance on abortion. Um, I can sort of see the arguments, but I think in practice he will actually fall between two stools and all the Trump supporters will hate him. But then a lot of the moderates will say, you know, you enabled Donald Trump. You are complicit in this, so we don't like you either. So I I, I doubt uh, Pence will, uh, will pull it off. Uh, uh, it's probably um, Trump versus DeSantis with, with Trump currently having the edge. What fascinates me is that in the country, unemployment is close to historic lows, uh, three and a half, three point six percent. The economy unemployment is at near historic lows, at least as far back as 1969. Job creation continues strong, strongly. Uh, inflation is higher than most people would certainly like. But it isn't nearly as high as it was uh, at the end of the Carter administration. And yet um, the, the incumbent president's polling numbers and popularity are, as they say, underwater. I went to see a friend in New York over the weekend uh, who follows politics closely. And uh, he was making the argument, you know, Joe Biden will go down in history as one of the most consequential presidents sort of the last century. And right now he's certainly one of the most underrated and you, know, you could argue he's passed the most legislation since Lyndon Johnson. Some would even say Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, you could argue he's actually eclipsed Barack Obama, who gets all the adulation. And of course, was hugely symbolic, symbolically important as the first black president. But uh, in terms of his record on legislation, uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare was huge in terms of health. But but after that, uh, maybe people would struggle to name that many things. Now, there's, there's certainly arguments there about it was much tougher for Barack Obama because he was black and, and Joe Biden being an old white guy gets a bit more license. But certainly Biden 
did a lot in his first two years in a Congress where Democrats had a very narrow majority, where he faced the coronavirus pandemic and, and multiple other crises. So it is a bit of a mystery. Why are his approval ratings so low? And also, why do people feel bad about an economy that by many measures is actually doing very well? And the White House will tell you, you know, Joe Biden added more jobs in his first two years than any other president in history. Um, unemployment's the, the lowest for half a century. Um, inflation is high, but has stabilized a bit. It's coming down. For example, uh, you know, petrol gas prices shot up um, when Russia invaded Ukraine, but they have um, they have come down. Um, I think you know, part of it, is, it's a very divided nation. So Republicans are automatically opposed to a Democratic president. Um, partly, you know, some of those economic gains are, are not really translating th- through to people's lives, uh, at least uh, not yet. Uh, part of it is, is post-pandemic shock. And, and some would argue part of it is a, is a failure by the White House to communicate um, these uh, achievements. Um, you know, Biden does travel the country giving speeches. As you can imagine, they certainly get drowned out by, by Trump trial coverage and, and, and lots else. Um, so uh, it does mean, I think, while Biden is 99.9% certain to be the nominee, uh, the, you know, the presidential election is, is not a done deal when you look at those um, a- approval um, numbers. Um, and, um, yeah, he, he's always said one of his toughest challenges is to unite uh, the nation, given the polarization. And he's only been partially successful in that. Uh, arguably, there's still a lot of opposition and and, and pro-Trump um, anger out there. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's uh, he, he's still in for a, a bit of a, a rough ride. Um, but I think the, the fact so many people are fixated on his age, you know, at 80, he's the oldest president in American history. Uh, if he serves a second term, he'd be 86 at the end of that, um, is partly illustrative of the fact that there's not much else to attack. You know, he's actually done a pretty good job in Ukraine and he's done a good, pretty good job on the economy. You know, maybe Afghanistan's another matter, but people are not really voting on that in the next election. Um, so hence, you know, in, in the absence of other issues, uh, sort of pretend stories about Hunter Biden and so on, um, you know, his age becomes the, the main, uh, talking point, um, and of course, again, if he's up against Trump, he's fairly well insulated in that, that Trump himself is uh, currently 76. We're going to take another station break in just a second. We're speaking with David Smith, the uh, Washington correspondent for the Guardian newspaper. But I want to pose a question to you to think about when we come back. Uh, maybe we can explore this in remaining minutes. We haven't talked about the Biden foreign policy very much, and it doesn't get all that much discussion, it seems. But uh, three contrasting examples, because of the Ukrainian war, the uh, Biden administration has managed to invigorate a NATO relationship among its members in the service of one particular goal, which is supporting Ukraine in its moment of travail. Um, on the other hand, the American relationship with China, which seems to go from bad to worser, if I can say a word like that on air, almost on a daily basis, and uh, also uh, the awkward relationship uh, that America seems to be having now with Israel, at least in the, in the context of uh, Biden's reluctance now to ha- even have a face-to-face meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu. So I'm going to park those with you for a second. We're going to take this break, 
and then we'll come back and you'll have all the answers to all those remaining questions in the next couple of minutes. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is the Deep Dive. This is Brooke Spector, and we're speaking with David Smith of the Guardian Newspapers, and he is in Washington. He's the Washington correspondent, and we turn to him periodically to get a sense of what's happening in Washington and in the country as a whole. And just before our our last break, I posed a question for him to think about the foreign policy circumstances of the U.S., three different circumstances, the U.S. and NATO, the U.S. and China, and uh, now the United States and Israel. David. Well, um, foreign policy is uh, a big part of Joe Biden's political career. He was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for for years when he was uh, a senator. Um, And certainly you will hear his allies and advocates um, say Joe Biden really gets it and he has the expertise and um, as in so many other ways, you know, when it's it's argued that uh, he was the perfect president for the coronavirus pandemic because he suffered grief and loss of his own. You know, he was the right man for the right moment. Similarly, they will say in, in, in a world spinning out of control, a world in crisis, uh, Biden was the, the perfect fit because he's a steady hand. He's very experienced. Um, I think he was he was born uh, during World War Two. And um, he's one of those last political figures who is a really is a real believer in um the transatlantic partnerships and in the, the 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 alliances that came out of world war ii and that kind of multilateralism and, and and never more needed of course than after the donald trump presidency which um instilled fear and anxiety in allies around the world he was a, an agent of, of chaos uh everything was was up for question um can we rely on america anymore you could almost um, hear the, the the sigh of relief in European capitals when Trump lost to Biden and, uh, OK, here's a man we understand again. Um, although you do certainly still hear those those whispers, those anxieties about, well, hang on a minute. What if Joe Biden loses to Trump in 2024 where, you know, maybe we can't trust America anymore. And um, and, and Biden himself talks about how allies ask him that. So um, I think in terms of uh, that all applies to, 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 to NATO, which, of course, uh, in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, has just um, e- expanded again, um, taking in Finland. And, and, and Biden is, is pleased about that and talks about how that was counterproductive for, for Putin. Um, I think, um, you know, with a bit of help from Biden, um, you know, NATO has been somewhat fortified by the threat of of Russia and, and what happened in, um, Ukraine. Um, you know, it, it's the old story. It's like, um, getting a vaccination for, for an illness. You know, um, you can be cruising along and taking it for granted, but when, when a threat emerges, it actually, um, you know, forces the antibodies to, to, to act. It, it kind of strengthens you again. Um, and, and suddenly, you know, in the way that journalists suddenly realized what they were for during the Trump presidency, likewise, NATO now has plenty of reason to understand what it's for. I've certainly seen some interesting arguments that um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has also taught Europe a lesson about uh, how it actually is still pretty dependent um, on the US. Um, you know, there's been 
talk in the past of Europe can stand alone and should stand alone. And, you know, we need to wean ourselves off dependency on American military might and economic might and so on. But uh, certainly there are, there are some who would argue uh, the, the last year or so has shown um, actually Europe does really desperately need America to step up and, and intervene um, on, on these occasions. And, and that, uh, again, is, is worrying if you look at uh, Trump and DeSantis's remarks on Ukraine um, and, and some some Republicans. Um, so it's, it's not a it's not guaranteed for forever uh, on on Israel. I think it's tricky for Biden because, uh, uh, again, you know, his age, his experience means he's certainly of that mindset that, um, you know, the the phrase they love to use is ironclad in terms of American support for Israeli um, security. Um, and yet um, uh, what's happening in Israel with, a, you know, probably the most right wing government in its history um, does not um, comport with uh, Biden's much articulated worldview of a struggle between global democracy and autocracy. Um, that's that's what he loves to talk about. Um, and it certainly uh, has been very resonant uh, in the Russia case and probably is most geared towards China and, and arguing, you know, the American model is uh, superior to the Chinese model in terms of delivering for, for people. You know, democracy beats autocracy. All of this, of course, plays out in many African countries. Um, but um, Israel, like some other countries in the Middle East, is a is, is, a, is a tough fit for that Biden model. You know, he, he wants to support and be loyal to Israel. But um, but frankly, Netanyahu um, was very, very close to Trump and seems to be behaving in some some Trumpian ways. So. Uh, so yeah, right now America is, is trying to play it both ways and say, yeah, of course we definitely support Israel, but yeah, we're a little bit worried about what's going on. And, um, the, uh, the American ambassador to Israel got into a bit of trouble by speaking quite bluntly and saying, you know, this judicial reform going in Israel, they should, uh, you know, they should hit the brakes or worse that effect. And that was seen as a little too, too candid. Um, so I think, I think that'll, that'll be a tricky one ongoing and, I apologize. Was there a third component that you're asking about or have I forgotten? The Middle Kingdom, China. Ah, right. Yes. Um, which is in, in, in many ways is arguably the, the defining, um, foreign policy question of the age for, for the U.S. Um, I think last year was the 50th anniversary of Richard Nixon's visit to, to China. Uh, that, that whole hope of, you know, we can open China up if we expose it to the economic liberal order, then Democracy will naturally follow. It hasn't quite worked out that way. I I, I was talking to a, an old colleague who was born in China, uh, who's now living in America about this, and and he said, you know, no regrets. I'm I'm really glad America and the West did try that because there are thousands of Chinese people now who got opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have had. They're all around the world. They're they're doing exciting things. Um, it was it was still a net positive, but. Obviously, in recent years, um, under President Xi, China does seem to have taken a dark turn towards um, autocracy, and it's um, clearly the, the the leading rival to America for for power. And um, you have seen, even in recent months, um, it's the one issue that uh, Democrats and Republicans agree on in in Washington. Um, 
We've had uh, some primetime televised congressional hearings about the, the threat of China with uh, you know, dramatic uh, film footage. Um, I think uh, some might say uh, on, on the positive side, um, as, as we saw during the Cold War, maybe this can heal some of the divisions uh, among the political parties. That, you know, having a common foe to, to rally against is always uniting. On the downside, um, there's, there's, you know, as we saw a bit of during the Cold War, there's always that problem of of scaremongering, of othering, of demonizing China, of, of scare tactics. Uh, some debates right now over the over the TikTok app and, and whether that's a, an aspect of that. Uh, there's a risk that uh, Chinese and other Asian people in America will suffer xenophobia. Um, so it's, you know, there's a lot in there, and and obviously the the, the potential crunch is uh, Taiwan. Um, is China watching what's going on in, in Ukraine, trying to learn lessons? Is it is it planning uh, a Taiwanese invasion? If it is, Joe Biden has said more than once uh, America would defend Taiwan and made it sound like that does include military hardware and and, and troops. Um, and and sometimes you see the the diplomatic spats, the the flashpoints, um, and you do worry that oh my god, you know, if if World War Three breaks out, then we will look back and say, of course, it was obvious, all the clues were there, the the, the economic rivalry, the the military rivalry. Um, but I I don't want to say that because I've already been pretty gloomy in one or two of my answers. I, I think I've already predicted an American civil war, so please don't let me predict World War Three as as well. Um, uh, I think, uh, you know, um, right now, at least, uh, you know, people like Joe Biden and others who, you know, one advantage we do have is that we've lived through World War One and World War Two. So, um, we know how this, this ends up. We, you know, we, we know how to at least to try to avoid such a situation. And, um, and certainly there are those who argue the Chinese threat and Chinese power is exaggerated. Um, it, it, you know, particularly when you speak to Chinese people, they say, yeah, we're, we're not all sort of eight foot giants who have brilliant at everything. There are, there are major internal problems in China. The pandemic, for example, was, was handled terribly. Um, you know, the, the military is not quite as daunting as, as, uh, as you think it is. The, the economy has, has slowed down. Um, and so there, there is another narrative where, um, the, the Chinese threat is being, um, exaggerated but yes uh, interesting times as they say you've been rather bleak haven't we the, the political yes. <laughs> system's gone go, gone to pieces uh there's war with china on the horizon uh the uh the war in ukraine continues can you point to some green shoots in in the in the next minute or two uh a couple of minutes maybe things that you say they don't get the headlines uh, but they should because they're important. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and, and amid all that doom and gloom, of course, we didn't even mention the, the climate crisis. But um, uh, all of that said, um, you know, uh, the 2020 election, there are predictions of civil war in America. Actually, the election ran tremendously smoothly and Joe Biden won handily. And I think time and time again, uh, guns, abortion, the things we've talked about in America, the, the majority of people actually are making sane, rational choices and election after election. Now that has translated and, um, in, in, into the results. Um, and, uh, that may well happen again in, um, in 2024. Um, as a lot of politicians say, you know, people like Barack Obama say, um, there is always terrific hope in, in young people. I remember going to the African Leadership Academy, um, near Johannesburg. I've, I've seen it in the U.S. as well. 
new generations coming through with with different world perspectives and ideas to solve problems. Tremendous hope and enthusiasm there. And um, if you really want something hopeful and optimistic, um, I, I heard an item on the radio the other day that um, stuck with me. Uh, it was the conceit, um, you know, if a newspaper was only published once a century, what would the headline be? And, you know, you think to yourself, uh, oh, it must be terrible stuff about plagues or world wars or nuclear bombs and even the climate. And, and actually, uh, the guy who came up with this question, his answer was um, the dramatic increase in life expectancy for the human race. And I and I can't remember what the exact figure is. Maybe it's 10 years or 20 years over the, the course of a, of a century. But uh, if you think about how profoundly that has affected us in improvements in science and healthcare, and the recent example of the the COVID uh, vaccine, um, that, that is grounds to be optimistic. Uh, millions and millions, billions of people are living much longer than they used to um, a, a century ago. And, and that surely is a positive sign of progress. Yes. I mean, it is easy when you want to look at um, the news. It's almost always you focus on the, uh, the old adage for the, for the media. If it bleeds, it leads. Or the other example with that is, um, you know, a, a newspaper would never write about a plane taking off and landing, but it would always write about a plane crashing. And I, I get that. Well, I mean, you could you could always write the story, 10 million air flights departed and landed safely. Two crashed. Right. And that's, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. And that those numbers are approximately right. Um, yeah. Because of the increased safety considerations, the upgrades in technology and communications, uh, and the real-time management of where every single plane on the planet is at any given moment, it's much safer to fly now than it was when either of us were, were much younger. But that doesn't make the headlines. And also you, you began this talking about, um, space and, and space exploration. There's, there's so much to celebrate there with, um, you know, the James Webb telescope was a fantastic uh, piece of human ingenuity and it and it works and is allowing us to peer into the origins of the universe. Uh, NASA just announced the uh, the Artemis team who will fly around the moon for the first time in half a century. Uh, it includes a person of color and a woman um, first time on a moon mission. And um, in the next few years, we'll, we will see the first woman and first person of color, I think, actually set foot on the moon and, and the plan with that is to then build towards a, a mission to, to Mars. Um, so if you want your, your Star Trek dose of you know, utopian idealism, um, you know, look to the stars where, uh, with, you know, commercial entrepreneurs, more and more possibilities are coming up. Well, I mean, in addition to the people you've mentioned in the Artemis, uh, crew, there's also a Canadian. Yes. Yes, there is. Yep. It's an, it's an international crew. Uh, and it's broadly representative of the population of the planet, which I think is clearly intentional and meant to send a message. Uh, not only are we back, but we are back, all of us. I saw the crew interviewed on late night TV, and I think the Canadian made the point that, uh, you know, America did not need Canada to be part of this. It's perfectly capable of doing it, but it, it did want to make that statement of, uh, inclusivity. Um, and, uh, and of course, it was interesting, even during the Cold War, um, America and the Soviet Union cooperated a, a huge amount in space. And the uh, 
the astronauts, cosmonauts, the engineers uh, all got on tremendously well. Um, it'll be a fascinating test now whether America and China can do the same. And so far, the, the signs are, are not great, but uh, at this part of this conversation, we're, we're trying to be upbeat and optimistic. So uh, <laughs> let's not reflect on that too much. I'm tempted to say we've been speaking with Jean-Luc Picard, but I I can't quite do that. Uh, we've been speaking with... With David Smith, the uh, Guardian correspondent in Washington, a man who's intimately familiar with many African nations. He served for years in Johannesburg, where we got to know him. And now he's in America, which is uh, his wife's home, actually. Uh, I should, should probably have mentioned that as well. And another international couple on, on the move. Uh, and although we've had some bleak moments in this conversation, I think we ended on a... Uh, we ended on a higher plane and a higher note, and I want to hear the sounds of Alexander Kerr. Alexander Courage's music coming in now. Let's see if we can do that. But it's been a pleasure to talk with you, as always, David. Thanks very much for sharing your time with us. Thanks for having me. And this is Brooke Spector with The Deep Dive, and we will be back next week uh, with yet another guest uh, speaking on issues of interest, importance, and uh, hopefully... Um, some upbeat things as well. We don't always want to present the bleak and the, and the depressing. I, I think it's important that we remember good things happen too. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week.